Wouldn't it be nice to have technologies that would allow us to keep powering our current society and even see more people gaining access to the comfort and emergency services and conveniences that many of us are used to? Unfortunately, according to the research done by the authors of the 2021 book Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It, the technologies that are being talked about as solutions, like solar power, wind power, and recycling, are far from solutions. They do serious damage, they create severe new problems, and they keep us from focusing on strategies that would actually benefit the web of life, while destruction only continues to accelerate. The conversation you're about to hear is between me and Max Wilbert, who co-authored this book with Derek Jensen and Larry Keith. There's also a documentary by the same title, directed by Julia Barnes. Bright Green Lies raises tough questions, and even though I wrestled with difficult thoughts and emotions reading the book, I found it incredibly heartening to speak with Max Wilbert, to meet with a kindred spirit and discuss questions that are so much at the forefront right now, both about what's going on deep in our hearts and minds around all this and some concrete information about what's going on and what to do. Max is a community organizer, writer, photographer, and wilderness guide, living in rural Oregon with his family in a small cabin under 100-year-old white oak trees. He's been part of grassroots political work for 20 years. He's the co-founder of Protect Thacker Pass, an effort to protect an area of Nevada known in the Paiute language as Pahimaha, a site sacred to regional Native American tribes and an intact ecosystem and critical wildlife habitat from becoming an open pit lithium mine. You'll find links in the show notes at turningseason.com slash episode 29 to the website dedicated to Protect Thacker Pass and a link to a specific page on that site called Solutions, which talks about how electric cars are no solution, but neither are fossil fuels and the question of what really is sustainability. There's a lot to explore there, and you might choose to consider these questions and what they mean for you. So we can all carry this together and keep on enacting our active hope as our circumstances develop and we continue to learn more. You're listening to Turning Season Podcast, your regular dose of active hope, bringing you news and deep conversations about our adventure toward a life-honoring, life-sustaining way of being human on Earth. This show is for every one of you who's awake to our multiple crises, feels your love for life on Earth, and is in the forever process of finding your way to participate in cultivating ways of life we can believe in, making a life-honoring present, even in the face of an uncertain future. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I facilitate the work that reconnects, I practice acupuncture and dream work, and I believe in the power of conversation. This podcast is one way the great turning happens through me. Welcome, and thank you for being here. Welcome, Max. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Let's start with some open sentences from the work that reconnects so we can drop into learning about how you are relating to being alive right now. 
So I'll invite you first to finish this sentence, however you're called to. Some things I love about being alive on earth are. Swimming in rivers. <laughs> That's what comes to mind right now, maybe because it's the depths of winter and I'm really looking forward to uh, the summertime and or at least the spring when I can jump in the rivers again. Mm, beautiful. And how about this one? When I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is? Oof, that's a challenging question, not because I can't come up with anything to say, but because there's too much to say. Yeah, I, I, I would say that I live in that heartbreak every day to a greater or lesser extent. And I think what really breaks my heart about it is the sort of thoughtlessness of the desecration, the, the lack of intention um, that allows it to continue or that makes it possible for many people to ignore what's happening. Yeah, I hear you. And I, I live in a relationship to that myself on a regular basis, watching business as usual play out and participating in it too, by necessity in a lot of ways and by choice. I wonder if you want to reflect on the idea of business as usual as one of the stories, the three stories of our time as Joanna Macy named them, that you know, three different ways of describing what's happening right now, business as usual being one of the ways life is taking place, the, a story people are living out, a second story being the great unraveling, which mm. is the heartbreaking story where everything is falling apart. And the third story being the great turning, that we can talk about our time as a time of a great adventure toward a life-sustaining, life-honoring way of being here. And of course, like any adventure story, it's full of peril and heartbreak, but hopefully we're headed toward some version of this great turning. Mm. I wonder how you relate to the idea of those three and where you find yourself living in those stories. Well, I was going to say that I hope that we are headed towards some version of the great turning, but, you know, as, as many people say among them, the Buddhists, uh, hope is a very dangerous thing because it implies sort of a giving up of agency over the future. So I'm not going to say that. I don't hope that we will get to a better future. Instead, I'm going to say that I'm going to work as hard as I can to make sure that we get to a better future. And if we don't get there in spite of it, then I'll know I've at least done the best that I could. And, you know, as, as far as business as usual, I think the biggest challenge that I think about often is, you know, we could think back to the, the past uh, decades and hundreds of years ago, even thousands of years ago, and think back to um, land-based societies, indigenous societies, different uh, different types of societies coming into contact with imperialism, with empire, with colonialism, and facing these cultures that were organized around war and expansionism, 
in a way that is incompatible with sustainability, you know, not to mention human rights and peace and so on. But one of the consequences of that is that they tend to have access to better weapons of war, right? If the, the Romans cut down the forests of North Africa to build their navy, and um, when you have a navy, when you're willing to destroy the soil to raise generations of soldiers on monocrop agriculture, when you're willing to blow up the mountains to forge metals and make swords and plows and aircraft carriers, uh, when you're willing to cut down the forest to make ships and, and, and so on, you have an advantage in, in terms of war. And you know today, that exact same situation is playing out in terms of the business as usual story, but it's usually not in the form of weapons. Sometimes it is, but it's economic weaponry. You know, colonialism doesn't look like swords and uh, crosses on you know three masted sailing ships anymore. It looks like the World Bank, and it looks like international trade agreements, and it looks like corporate power. And what's the same now is that when you're willing to destroy the land, you gain a short-term competitive advantage. And so, you know, I find myself as a grassroots environmentalist, as someone working for a better future, struggling to uh, make ends meet, to, uh, and even beyond that, more importantly than that, struggling to work with a limited community of people who are volunteering on the side to try and make a sustainable world while they still have to go to work to pay their bills and get by, feed their families. And meanwhile, we're facing off against corporations who are hiring people starting at six figures out of college and can throw essentially unlimited resources at us. You know, that's, I, I don't say this sort of as a sob story or something like that, but to help us explain and put a framework on what's happening, what the business as usual framework is. And a lot of people sort of embrace that and say, well, you know, wealth and success and uh, vibrant economies are good things and we should work towards them and so on. But the problem is it's short term, right? It's not going to last. It's going to collapse. It's going to fall apart. And um, th that great unraveling is already happening in lots of different places around the world. It's playing out in lots of different communities at different speeds. But it's here. It's not a future condition. But it's hitting, as usual, it's hitting you know, the poorest people, the most disadvantaged and oppressed people. It's hitting uh, the natural world, non-humans. Um, it's hitting water, soils, mountains harder than it's hitting the rich. They're isolating themselves with their money. So uh, we've got a lot of work to do <laughs> to turn this around. But I suppose what did, does give me some solace or some um, serenity in it all is that we have the strongest ally possible, which is life on earth itself. Or you could say the earth itself or herself or however you want to uh, refer to the earth. I don't think a, a pronoun, a, a human, an English language pronoun is really applicable necessarily. Mm. But, um, you know, this, 
this process of life is on the side of biodiversity. It's on the side of sustainability, of people living close to the land, of finding long-term ways to coexist and cohabitate. That's, um, that's what life is always working towards in all kinds of different ways, you know, from the sort of uh, peaceful and benign uh, and nature of a plant growing and, and purifying the air to, you know, sort of the aggressive nature of the storms that are hitting California right now, you know, tearing down power lines and breaking up roads and concrete. Uh, the world doesn't want those things. And, um, and uh, you know, the land rebels in all kinds of different ways against these artificial industrial uh, strictures and, and restraints and bonds which are placed on it. I think you're making some profound points here. I really appreciated what you said about when you're willing to, all the different things you named about essentially violating other forms of life and other people, there are these short-term advantages that come. And when you're trying not to do more of that violating, then you kind of have to just by being born into this system, you're disadvantaged in certain ways. And that has huge tangible consequences on something like the campaign you're working on to protect Thacker Pass. So I just wanted to echo that and highlight it because it's an inquiry that we have to sit with, I think, as people who want to act in favor of the survival of life on Earth, humans and many other forms of life included. How do we uh, accept or even take some of these advantages so we can even engage? in the conversation or the fight or the process, but not, there are a lot of things that we're not willing to do. So yeah, it's challenging. It's definitely challenging. And, you know, I, I say that as someone who grew up in a progressive family and, you know, comes from a background, a history of labor activism and so on. Um, and so much of that sort of drive for human solidarity and and justice economic justice and so on has been focused on these uh industrial measures of economic wealth and um, spreading value out more equally between society you know making sure that the ultra wealthy aren't just profiting off the labor of of working class people and and hoarding everything which is great and also you know, doesn't address the ecological issues, right? As we've seen in different socialist and communist countries around the world, they may have some better ecological policies in some areas, but they may have worse ones in other areas. Um, so, you know, just just reducing that sort of inequality isn't enough. And that's, you know, that that's not to say that that movement is wrong or that people were coming from the wrong frame or anything like that. I think we've just come further, you know, time has advanced and we've learned more, you know, we've, we've started to incorporate more of the ecological knowledge as, uh, you know, this globalized society we live in has destroyed more and more biodiversity and uh, the health of the oceans and the global climate and forests and so on and so on. 
um, it's become hard to ignore, you know, what people used to think of as the environmental movement being sort of a, a niche concern of conserving places for their scenic values, you know, has uh, pretty rapidly become something that a lot of people rightly perceive as being, you know, not only an issue of um, quality of life and health and so on, but also also of survival, right? Of uh, so, even if you do have a purely self interested perspective, if you only believe in promoting the welfare of human beings, which uh, you know there are some people who do, I, although I think a lot of people really, you know, they they love their pets at least. They love taking a walk out in nature, even if it's just a city park or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but you know you can't ignore this and if, if you look in the long term then the self-interest of human beings dovetails with the interests of the natural world and other species who we live on this planet with because we're completely interdependent of course you know we, every breath of air we take every bite of food that we rely on every you know piece of clothing we wear our homes everything around us comes from the natural world it comes from this planet it's provided by the earth in one way or another and you know not recognizing that sort of building an economy based on uh, aggressive exploitation of the planet and a taking from is is ultimately pretty childish and i'm hopeful that we can grow out of it because we have seen throughout history we have seen a lot of human societies that um, have lived in sustainable ways. Of course, they had much lower populations. They had uh, generally much less technology at their disposal, much less energy at their disposal. Um, so those are obviously factors, but I think it would be a mistake to say that those are the only factors and that culture and human choices don't play a very important role in, in, in sustainability long term. Yeah. And this ties back, I feel, to what you said at the beginning as well, that the human cultures that have been long-term sustainable and that have had a life-honoring orientation haven't been willing to do all the things you named to create weapons and raise soldiers and go out and enact the scale of violation against life on earth that has been possible and desirable in dominant culture. The scale of destruction to where we're talking about the survival of life on earth has relied on certain, certain violations to even produce enough material and extract enough to get us into the situation we're in right now. And I think when you said that about, you know, the labor movement and wanting to distribute wealth more evenly, if we take a step back, which you and your co-authors are so good and thorough about doing in Bright Green Lies, like what does this rely on? What's behind that? What's underneath that process? The displacement of people from their lands to even do the extraction that creates the wealth that now we're talking about distributing more evenly already began from a violation of other humans' rights by displacing or outright killing the people who did care for that land. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting to me because one of the best books I've ever read is by a man named Jack D. Forbes, who is a Lenape Indian. He was a professor at 
UC Davis for many years, and he was involved in sort of the um, Native American cultural resurgence of resistance movement in the 1970s. Um, and he wrote a book called Columbus and Other Cannibals. And in that book, um, and I don't know, maybe you've read it or certain people in your audience have, but in that book, for those who haven't heard about it, he talks about this concept of the Wetico or the Wendigo, as it's called in some cultures. I think that the story may originate from some of the Great Lakes region tribes. And my my understanding, which is probably wrong, probably somebody from that culture would laugh at me, but I'll communicate as best I can. The idea is that uh, a Wetico is a person who, um, who can't stop taking who is possessed by something like an evil spirit of greed and they're never satiated. They're never full. They never have enough. So they're always consuming and, you know, they might consume food and so on, but they'll also consume human beings and they might consume the land. Um, and, uh, my understanding was that this story, this, this mythology, this legend, and this, this oral history, you know, speaks of, the time in the the midwinter and late winter when food might be scarce in these communities in you know really cold temperatures uh, you know their food stocks are running out and it's in, it's it's a natural human feeling in conditions of starvation to at least think about taking more than your share of what there is you know to 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 be so hungry that you might be willing to take somebody else's, you know, dried meat or jerky or uh, berries or whatever, it, you know, whatever food it is that you've you've put away for the winter. That's a natural human feeling that can arise in all of us. But if you indulge that feeling, then uh, you are essentially destroying your humanity, right? You are um, giving up something and turning yourself to some degree into a monster. And so this story. Jack D. Forbes is taking the story of the Wetico and he's applying it to Columbus and uh, and essentially to the entire dominant culture that we live in today and saying that our culture could be defined as having sort of a spiritual sickness that is characterized by this incessant consumption of everything consumption of people, consumption of soil, consumption of the land, consumption of fish, consumption of oceans, consumption of a healthy climate, consumption of everything. And there's no satiating those desires. It's at root, it's a spiritual illness. You know, something is, is it's like, a, he describes it as like a mental illness with a physical vector. And what he means by that is that it's contagious, essentially right? This is based on ideology. You can teach people this. And, you know, in many ways, our culture, the dominant culture that we live in in this country and that's spread, you know, around the world is this sort of Wetico culture. And, uh, you know, that that is a very helpful framework to me because for one, it demystifies some of these issues. You know, it it tells me that the capacity for selfishness, for taking, for violence, for exploitation exists in all human beings, right? It's a, it's a 
It's a latent trait that is in everyone when we're born. But uh, human beings are very social creatures and we're shaped by our parents, our communities, our friends, the culture that we live in, the stories that we're told and so on. And those stories can lead us in different directions. And if we tell stories that uh, glorify the rich and glorify consumption and glorify the latest technology and gadgets and uh, accumulation of wealth and conspicuous travel and, uh, and so on and so forth, we're going to get people turn out a certain way. And if we tell stories instead that warn that if you indulge that greed that you're going to feel sometime as a human being, uh, you're hurting yourself, you're losing part of your humanity, you're allowing uh, something monstrous to gain a toehold inside yourself, um, and we instead teach people other stories, then we're going to uh, end up with people who are very different. And that to me is, uh, that's pretty empowering. Um, it doesn't change the fact that, you know, the mass media is controlled by corporations. It doesn't change the fact that our school system systems generally don't teach much of anything about sustainability and these issues. It doesn't change the fact that, you know, so much of children's education these days is from YouTube and TikTok and social media and, uh, you know, mediated by these algorithms which care nothing for sustainability and nothing for our children's well-being. Um, it doesn't change the fact that, you know, capitalism, a, a brutal form of industrial economics, dominates the world today and po dominates politics and so on. Those facts are still there, but uh, it helps me see the possibility that it doesn't have to be this way, that this is not human nature, that this is uh, the result of cultural choices. And if we make different cultural choices, we can um, start heading in a better way. Yes, absolutely. It's very, very helpful for that. And the another book you've probably read, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, she also talks about the story of the Wendigo and shares a little bit about ways that the Wendigo spirit was dealt with and her the beginning of her ideas of how we might deal with it as a sort of cultural virus. Um, there's another author who calls it a mind virus that I'm, I'm not thinking of his name right now. But yeah, I think so. I just to name it, I I want to invite you to talk about Thacker Pass and some things from Bright Green Lies and let listeners know about some of those real concrete things. And I will come back to it, but I want to follow this thread with you because it feels very alive and I can tell that you're deeply engaged in not only the fights, the activism that you're doing, but these deeper questions about our consciousness and how do we actually create something different? How do we be in favor of something different? And so I want to ask you about this idea of relinquishment, because I think in the deep adaptation view of what's going on right now, where major collapse is either likely inevitable or already underway, one of the, the four R's in that framework is relinquishment. We need to let go of things that are making our situation worse. So I think there's room for a whole other realm of stories in there 
the Watiko, the Wendigo story is so valuable for that, for not going wrong, right? For not veering from the life honoring path. But right now we're way off track and it's very hard to relinquish. Where I find myself is less in a place of insatiable hunger, but more in a place of relative safety and plenty and gratitude and meaningful connection and fulfilling life. And when I look at what I do, including conversing with you right now on Zoom and then producing it as a podcast and sharing it on Instagram, I'm involved in a very sick system, sick and destructive because of physical materials that are in these devices and because of the electricity that they need. And so there's a part of me that just wants to walk away from all of that to just not, just to not participate. But I also love it. And I also know that someone like you who's using YouTube to raise awareness to protect Thacker Pass, Thacker Pass isn't going to benefit from you relinquishing all devices. It's actually, you kind of need to communicate in that way. So I'm curious what you think about all of that. How, how do you reconcile your participation in this system that I you so eloquently talk about how it needs to come apart? How do you relate I mean, to that? It's challenging one. I'm going to look up a quote right now. Uh, and it's a quote from Arundhati Roy, who you may be familiar with. She's from India and she's written remarkably on nuclear weapons, on uh, the destruction of the planet, on corporate power. I had the joy of hearing her talk one time and I've read a lot of her articles, but she, okay, here's the quote. She says, fighting people will choose their own weapons. And that quote is very interesting to me because, you know, if you think about resistance movements throughout history, they're, they've always used whatever is going to be most effective. Um, they've rarely been built on purity. You know, you do see counterexamples of sort of these movements that take an ideological stand, like the civil rights movement, um, taking nonviolence as an ideological stand, uh, people like Martin Luther King. And yet uh, biographers and friends who went inside his home uh, during the height of the civil rights movement described it as looking like an arsenal because there were so many guns lying around. Uh, you know, they tried to, they bombed his home. They tried to kill his little girls, right? And you know, there were armed military veterans who would often march with their weapons and protect uh, peaceful, nonviolent marchers in parts of the South. Um, there's a book and a film that discusses this called The Deacons for Defense. Um, I guess my point is that social change is really messy. It, it always has been and it always will be. And um, I think there is certainly a very important place for these personal questions about our engagement with certain tools, certain technologies, and so on. Not least because they're sort of corrosive to our souls, you know, to our well-being in so many different ways. I'm sure you can relate 
mm-hmm. about Definitely. you know social media and just using the internet at all you know i i honestly dream of taking my cell phone taking my laptop and just throwing them off a high cliff and walking away and never having another email never having another phone call in my life and <laughs> you know that doesn't mean that i don't like talking to my family who lives 300 miles away it doesn't you know mean that i don't like connecting with people and and don't find some value in those tools but they are not on my terms and the costs are exceptional um you know one of the so basically the paradigm of the book bright green lies is we took a series of technologies so for example um solar panels and we tried to break down what goes into a solar panel so what actually are the physical materials that are inside a solar panel the silicon that makes up the solar cells the uh, silver and copper that's in the wiring and uh, the glass that's in the panel covering the steel that's in the frame Um, and then we tried to look at what else do you need for a solar panel to work well you need inverters you need uh, transmission lines and substations to transmit the electricity. You need batteries if you're going to store it. And we tried to trace where all those things come from, how those materials are extracted from the earth, how they're refined and transformed into a final product, and then how they're installed and used, what that process actually looks like, and then what happens when they break or when they're disposed of. And we can do the same thing for a laptop, for this microphone sitting here next to me, the water bottle that I have on my left, this lamp that's right in front of me, the desk that I'm sitting at, um, the boards under my feet in my cabin, uh, the Christmas lights that we have strung up here for not just for Christmas. They've been on the wall, honestly, for four or five years. Um, (laughs) You know, any consumer product, any artifact of this culture, and generally, the results are not going to be pretty. Um, you know, I have, I have a um, ceramic cup here in front of me that my mom is a potter and she actually made this ceramic cup. And so you could say, okay, this is relatively benign, right? This is clay. It's just a simple substance that comes from the earth and it was formed into a certain shape um, and then it was fired into a cup but then of course this was fired in a kiln that was heated to whatever several thousand degrees that was done using the electric grid in seattle washington where my parents live which is connected to dams it's connected to coal power plants it's connected to um, natural gas and fracking and so on you know i don't know what the uh, glazes that were used are made from what are the sources for those i don't know what the clay mining looks like where does uh, clay that's used by potters actually come from Uh, you know i know my mom didn't walk down to a local clay deposit and you know dig out a little bit of it by hand and take it home Um, Mm -hmm. she bought it you know it came wrapped in plastic and it was shipped from some other location and i don't know what that place was like before it was a clay mine but it was probably a forest or a meadow um, or something like that and so my point is there are costs associated with almost everything in this industrial culture we live in. 
And it's so easy to ignore those because we get all this messaging like this is sustainable or this is green. You know, it, it's green to use a reusable water bottle ra rather than a plastic disposable bottle, right? It's, it's green to um, bring your own gl glass Tupperware uh, if you're going to eat out or, you know, eat your leftovers out of that rather than getting a styrofoam takeaway bin or something. Um, and, you know, there's one level on which that's true, right? It's very obvious. And at the same time, you know, this water bottle sitting here next to me is itself an industrial artifact, right? It's made of steel. Uh, it was built in a factory somewhere. And, you know, so that's what we tried to look at with Bright Green Lies is where does that steel actually come from? specifically. <laughs> and, you know, what we learned, for example, is that the largest iron ore mine in the world, steel is made from iron ore combined with um, carbon and, and uh, other things. But um, the largest iron ore mine in the world is in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. And, it, and it's actually what used to be the Amazon rainforest because there has been literally thousands of square miles of deforestation associated with this iron ore mine. Um, so the book is pretty heavy. <laughs> you were mm -hmm. saying that to me before we, uh, before we started recording that you were rereading some last night and really feeling the emotion of it hit you. And I felt that very strongly as well when I was writing the book mm -hmm. and, uh, researching all these things. It's sort of a litany of the industrial horrors that are required to produce what then gets called green technologies. And, you know, we're not doing that to promote fossil fuels. We're not doing that to protect the status quo. What we're trying to show is that this is the status quo. This is the same thing that has been going on for a long time. It's not really different. It may result in less carbon emissions, but we're still talking about an industrial process that's very destructive to the planet from the very beginning to the very end. And... Uh, you know, that's to me, that's one of the problems of uh, the climate movement today, which has made so much progress, which I'm so grateful for in so many ways, and yet has, I think, lost touch with the land itself in some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Bright Green Lies is, I think it's heavy because we so much want the hope. That there's a way, as as you all say in the book, that there's a way to save our way of life. And we can say that with a lot of judgment and harshness. Oh, people just want to save themselves and save their way of life. But yeah, we want to save our way of life. Like those of us who are doing well right now, again, with relinquishment, you know, the, the current system has us both by those twin powers of desire and fear, right? We don't want to give up modern medicine and we don't want to give up what we enjoy. And in fact, we hope more people could have access to good medicine and a safe and fulfilling life, right? And so part of the heaviness is to realize that our lives are built on this terrible destruction. Even the things that we're being told are, are actually better. Well, they're not that much better. Um, and that we can't, we we are going to probably have to let a lot of this go by choice or just by it becoming impossible because the biosphere is collapsing. 
But I think that's what draws me personally to that question. As I, the reason I'm bringing up relinquishment today, as I was reading through this, there's a lot of very good, clear declarations in the book of, you know, what is zero waste? Actually, zero waste means your waste is something else's food in a quantity that's useful, right? That's the only way nature has zero waste because something eats it. And what is a real green building? And there's an example, I think, from you about in the Pacific Northwest and dwellings made of cedar bark and and real what a real green building would be. And it seems so clear that a real green living situation and a zero waste situation means we have very little of the things modern industrial society is used to. The heaviness also, of course, is because of reading about all the poisoning and death and destruction and heartbreaking losses in the human and more than human world. But I think even though it's hard to face, it's so important, as you also say in the book, to not put our energy towards false solutions, to not think that if we can um, help the movement to electrify everything so that all our energy can come from solar and wind and hydro, that we're doing a good thing for life on earth. That's that's a, a misdirection of a lot of people's real heartfelt desire to do a good thing for life on earth. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And, and the relinquishment piece I want to I want to touch on because you know, I'm just as much of a product of this modern culture as anyone else. You know, I it's so easy to go online and buy something this these days and have it delivered to your door and you know, we have a level of luxury available to us. Even somebody like me who, you know, using the federal government definition, I'm living in poverty. But, you know, I I literally could go online and buy almost anything I wanted and have it delivered to my door in like a day, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that it's a level of luxury that would have been unimaginable to an emperor 150 or 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's become so normal, you know, and it it's sort of in our again, it's in our human nature to want things to be easy, to want to to be comfortable, to take care of each other, to really have everything work well for us, right? That's how we've survived as species and gotten so far. So I really understand, I think, why this is so enticing, why everyone, including myself, is uh addicted at some level to this culture that we live in it's mm-hmm. it's almost impossible not to be right it's almost as if consumerism is uh it's like a highly addictive drug that's being pumped into the water supply right mm-hmm. it's just it's in the water it's in the air it's just uh, you can't avoid it it's just here and um i'm reminded of george orwell who wrote 1984 famously, he, around 80 years ago, he wrote this quote, all left-wing parties in the highly industrialized countries are at bottom a sham because they make it their business to fight against something which they do not really wish to destroy. They have internationalist aims and at the same time, they struggle to keep up a standard of life with which those aims are incompatible. And then he says uh, what, 
we would consider a uh, uh, offensive term. So I'm going to skip that. He says, we all live by robbing, and then I'm going to say poor people in Asia. And those of us who are enlightened all maintain that those people ought to be set free, but our standard of living and hence our enlightenment demands that the robbery shall continue. So basically what he's saying is that you know, everybody talks about, all, all the people in the left wing who are talking about uh, justice for the poor people of the world uh, are often hypocrites because they're at the same time struggling to maintain this industrial way of life, which relies on the exploitation of poor people around the world and colonized nations around the world. And, um, you know, this to me is, it's a very understandable human thing, right? This is like, this, this is why the Greeks had tragedy as like the, the core of their drama, right? This is, this is such a profoundly human situation where you can really understand why people who are so um, focused on electric cars, for example, really believe in their hearts that they're doing the right thing for the world mm -hmm. by you know, helping transition away from fossil fuel vehicles and so on. Um, you know, it's, it's so understandable to me. And yet at the same time, fossil fuel use is higher than it's ever been. We're in this culture of incessant growth, population growth, economic growth, uh, and so on. And consumption is higher than ever and is rising. Uh, you know, basically we're in a situation where you have more cars than ever, more energy being used than ever. And so the fossil fuel use isn't going down. It's just that the solar and wind energy is being added on top of the fossil fuel use. So now there's even more energy. And that energy is not being used to, uh, by and large, to restore the natural world or house and feed and clothe homeless people and poor people or to, uh, you know, enhance our spiritual well-being and sense of community and belonging it's largely being used to you know make certain people very wealthy and to create entirely new industries like cryptocurrency and you know massive data centers that suck vast amounts of water and electricity and so on it's it's shopping malls it's uh, you know video game development it's this sort of thoughtless growth and so we are sort of living in a tragedy, is my feeling. We're living in this tragedy where people think that they're doing what's right for the long term, and I don't think it's the right thing. I think they're sort of undermining themselves without understanding it. And, you know, I'm not trying to say that I'm some great enlightened person who's got everything figured out. You know, I... I learned everything I know about this from others. You know, I'm not I'm not an original thinker at all. But um, but these issues are just pretty clear when you really start to look into them. It's not that complicated to understand. Um, but it's challenging to figure out what to do. And um, you know, that's that's one reason why I went down to Thacker Pass back in early 2021. Um, for people who aren't aware, Thacker Pass is a proposed lithium mine in northern Nevada. Um, lithium is the main component in batteries, lithium-ion batteries, which are in cell phones, but are also in electric cars and are increasingly in demand for um, 
massive storage batteries for the grid, for the electricity grid, so that, for example, when it's nighttime and there's no solar uh, power being generated, you can run things off these giant batteries rather than off the solar panels. Um, and this proposed lithium mine would be the largest lithium mine in North America. It would destroy this incredibly important wildlife habitat. We later learned that it's a very significant uh, cultural site to the Northern Paiute indigenous people of that region. It's a sacred site. It's a site where uh, two massacres of Paiutes took place in history. And, uh, and we've been fighting for it for a couple of years now. And, you know, some people have accused us of being shills for the fossil fuel industry. I just send them a photo of me, you know, blocking a coal train <laughs> or, you know, fighting the tar sands. Um, you know, I, I'll do more than that. I don't want to be flippant to those accusations because um, there are real fossil fuel industry shills out there. There are real, um, you know, organizations and PR firms and, and astroturf groups getting paid to um, promote the fossil fuel industry in different ways. Um, but, you know, I, I'll, I will show that I have credentials that I've been fighting fossil fuels and have been very worried about global warming and, and advocating for those issues for many years. And, and other people um, think that we're just kind of blocking progress, that we are, you know, some sort of anachronistic group that is standing in the way of progress. And, you know, progress is a very challenging one because I don't know if you know um, the great Chickasaw writer, Linda Hogan. Um, she's a, a native woman and she has written some fantastic books. Um, but she said, Indian people stood in the way of progress, and progress is a sort of madness that is a god to people. Decent people commit horrible crimes that are acceptable because of progress. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we need to be concerned about progress. We don't just need to accept it uh, blindly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love one of the ideas that you repeat multiple times in Bright Green Lies that anything we really can consider green should actually benefit the web of life on Earth. Like it should actually be good for right. the planet. And blowing up Thakur Pass or Pahimaha, as it's called in Paiute, is not benefiting life on Earth in any way. It's destructive. And it is for the sake of lithium for batteries, which is for the sake of solar, which we could say is for the sake of using less fossil fuels, which is for the sake of maintaining our way of life. And none of that is actually about benefiting the ecosystems and the webs that sustain all of us, including yeah. humans. Yeah. So, and I'm thinking back to what you said early, early in our conversation about what life is in favor of, what life doesn't want, you know, and you were talking about roadways and, and things that, that don't stand up to the natural expressions of the weather, the earth. And there's a part towards the end of the book about what if we had bacteria that could eat up the plastic, you know, like, because life actually wants things that decay. But the reason we use plastic is because it's something that doesn't decay. And, and our culture tries for things that won't break down, tries to keep things out of the cycle 
of life out of us, sort of a zero waste circular way of being. But life doesn't want that. Life's going to keep trying to uh, keep things in the cycle and in the fold. So I like to imagine that with all our hypocrisy and all our addictions that we've been talking about, that the life within us is still directing us towards more life-sustaining choices somewhere in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, I I don't know what you think about this, Leilani. I'm actually curious to get your thoughts, but you know, one of the th accusations that people will often throw at me is that you know, I want to go back to a pre-industrial world or something like that. And my sort of knee-jerk response <laughs> when I'm annoyed with that type of question is to say, you know, nah. <laughs> or, but you know, when I think about it, of, of course we can't go back, right? The the world is a very different place in so many ways than it was, um, you know, where I am, colonization took place uh, 180 years ago in this area, down into California, it was earlier, um, in your area, quite a bit earlier. But, you know, where I live, the salmon are gone, right? The wildlife has been decimated. The, the Willamette Valley, which used to be so full of camas flowers, a type of lily that blooms this beautiful blue color in the springtime and is a really important indigenous food source that early European um, settlers and trappers and so on described it as a sea of blue. They actually thought it was an inland lake, the entire valley, because mm. it was covered in these flowers. Um, that's all been plowed up and turned to agriculture, right? Industrial agriculture, not artisan, small scale uh, perennial polyculture or something like that. Heavy-duty, destructive, soil-killing industrial agriculture. Um, and, you know, there. I'm also not going to be so simplistic as to say nothing good has come out of the last, you know, 300 years or 500 years or whatever you want to say, right? I, I think that would be silly to, to say that. And I understand why some people might say that out of a real sense of of anger over what has happened. Um, and that's totally justified. Um, but for me personally, you know, I think about things like, well, you know, now we have germ theory and I'm actually pretty glad about that. Like we can hang on to that, right? <laughs> germ mm -hmm. theory is a sustainable idea and, you know, may really improve people's quality of life in different ways um, in the future. You know, I don't think electric cars are sustainable. That's very clear. Um, but there's a, a lot of knowledge, a lot of sustainable or land-based technologies that are non-industrial technologies that I think could be maintained in some way in the future. What I'm saying, I guess, is that the future is is an open book. It's We don't know what it's going to look like. It's It's a mystery, and it's not going to look like the past. It's probably not going to look anything like we think it is. But it's likely to be some sort of amalgam of of these things from the current modern era with with things from the deeper past. And I consider myself an animist and really see you know spirits and life and anima, life force and 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 volition in trees and rivers and mountains and everything around us. And yet, I think there is a lot of good that has come out of science. Certain aspects of science certain areas of research and ways of thinking and gathering knowledge 
that aren't exclusive to Western culture by any means, but which have been developed nonetheless over the last centuries. And we can keep those things. You know, we can be creative about the future. We can create a future that brings together the best of, of everything. And, you know, there are certain things that I think are non-negotiable, not because I say so, but because the laws of ecology are immutable. You know, it's like gravity. You can't argue with it. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just there, right? Um, that's, that's what ecology is. And we have to fit ourselves within that. Arguing with it is only going to get you uh, smacked down sooner or later. But there's a lot of room for, for creativity, for different things, for creating futures that are full of abundance and not abundance in a sort of superficial commercial way that we think of it now, but, you know, a truer abundance, an abundance of, of joy and family and connection and connection to place and land and, and so on. And I think that ultimately those things are so much more important. You know, I, out at Thacker Pass, one of the experiences that I often share was sitting down with one of the elders there and her saying to me, when the mining company comes out here, they see wasteland. They see, you know, sagebrush and dirt and rock. And she said, when we come out here, we see everything we need to survive. Mm. And what she's saying is that that's home, right? Mm -hmm. That's where you get your food, your medicine, your clothing, your housing. That's where you get your water. That's where you get, uh, that's where you do your ceremonies. That's where children are born. That's where uh, elders die and you bury them. That's where everything happens in the context of the land and, you know, cradled by the land. And that, to me, that, that mindset that underlies that is so much more sophisticated ultimately and so much more useful ultimately than, uh, you know, the type of intelligence that goes into building the electric drivetrain of a Tesla car or something like that, you know, which, mm. it, sure, it's impressive on this sort of crass technical level, but... Um, uh, ultimately, it it doesn't have that much usefulness in the world that we need to go towards. And that's not to say that that type of intelligence isn't useful. I just think it needs to be redirected towards aims that support life rather than destroying life. Yeah, and how incredibly valuable for this creative process of making our future to embed that kind of intelligence in a worldview and a value system that sees land like that as the place where everything happens, this living place that we are sustained by and cared for by and care for in return. What happens when we bring all of our brilliance, all of our intellectual brilliance into that worldview? I'd be excited. I'd be excited about the uh, yeah. the ideas that come out of that. I I love that whole response to the idea that you're trying to take us backwards. I mean, yeah, I think looking at it as an unknown future. We don't know the future. How could we? Nobody does. So many things are possible. And like you said, social change is messy and... There's no possibility of going back. So inevitably, we're going forward into something different that we've never seen before. 
And if we can, with our active hope, steer that towards these kinds of values, I mean, that's the best we can do, right? Yeah. I think it's important we try and do that. I mean, also, I just think it's, it's, I don't know, maybe this is just personal to me, but I think it's more fun and more exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, yeah, I mean, sure, you can go online and read about the specs of the latest iPhone or, you know, SpaceX's latest rocket launch and how the preparations to go to Mars are going and so on. And I'm sure that's really exciting to the folks who are involved in it at some level. But that's one of the things is like, there's this sort of mythology around progress, you know? And like, I'm sure those people in some ways, and I'm not trying to make make a direct comparison, you know, because obviously the situation's different. But in some ways, that's probably the mentality that people like Christopher Columbus had, right? When they were sailing across the ocean and, you know, exploring and finding new lands and so on. And it's really easy to justify atrocities when you have some great giant claim to virtue like that, you know, like where I'm leading us into this great new future. Mm. and. You know, in that era, the atrocities were, um, you know, basically total destruction of the Taino and and the indigenous people of the Caribbean, and and nowadays it's, um, it's the total destruction of places like Thacker Pass. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's easy to sort of just sweep those problems under the rug and say, well, that's the cost of progress. Mm-hmm. Right? That's just the yeah. price that we have to pay. Yeah. But the thing is, those people aren't paying the price. They're just reaping the benefits, right? right. It's easy to say like, oh, well, that's the cost when you don't actually pay that cost. And uh, the people who do pay the cost don't reap the benefits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, often. Yeah. And, you know, there are so many different directions we can go in, Leilani, like that in itself brings up an issue, which is how often corporations these days will um, essentially work to bribe communities. You know, um, mm-hmm. and this is something there's a great thinker named Lewis Mumford, who we mentioned in the book. Lewis Mumford's this famous thinker on cities and urbanization and so on. I guess he's called one of the greatest U.S. American public intellectuals. He talked about what he called the magnificent bribe, which is basically this idea that, you know, with the abundance of fossil fuel energy available in This era, he was writing, I think this was maybe in the 60s, maybe even the 50s. So it was even more abundant and cheap fossil fuel energy than there is now by quite a bit um, on a per capita measure, right? And he basically was saying, because there's so much energy available now, those who are really in power, they don't have to keep the working class as total slaves. You know, this isn't like the ancient Egyptian kingdoms where you know you're just keeping people in a total state of misery and exploiting them you know at the point of a spear to build your pyramid or whatever fight your war or whatever you want them to do there's so much availability that you can have these ultra rich ultra powerful people and at the same time provide a relatively high standard of living to a a, a sizable proportion of other people and he called this the magnificent bribe and he was sort of talking about what was different in that era compared to 
say, uh, you know, 100 years before when the Communist Manifesto was written, for example, and you have sort of early industrial capitalism and workers are just living in complete destitution and horribly exploited and diseases and overworking and child labor and, and no rights and just terrible, right? Um, and he was reflecting on the fact that that's changed in no small part due to people fighting like hell to try and get rights. But mm -hmm. also, you can't discount this element that, you know, fossil fuel energy, abundant fossil fuel energy has sort of allowed the ruling class to kick down a bunch of bones to poor and working class people to sort of say, hey, you know, don't have a revolution. You can have some, uh, you can have some, a little bit of material wealth too. Not much, but just enough to keep you from, you know, grabbing a gun and getting on the streets. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's a, I mean, that just continues today. That's sort of globalization in a nutshell, really, in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's sad, but it's real. It's a real thing. And, you know, it's a big challenge. It's a really big challenge. It is. And I could talk to you for another hour just about that. I can tell we could go uh, in so many directions and, and it would be rich. I, I am mindful of our time and I want to ask you a practical question before we wrap up okay. for myself and for listeners, what we can do to support protecting Thacker Pass or Pahimaha. How can we support that? Well, I would say a few things. One would be check out the website or check out the social media and follow us, sign up for the email list, all that type of stuff. We, um, we need people to help spread the word to sometimes make phone calls, um, and also potentially to show up at the site for direct action or in the area. Um, so that's one way people can help. The second way people can help is donate if you have a little bit of extra money. Um, we're basically doing all this on a shoestring budget. I think we've raised like $53,000 to fund a two-plus-year campaign now. So um, we're we're doing this at a very grassroots level with basically all small donations and just trying to scrape by without spending money on, you know, fancy offices or any office, frankly, <laughs> mm -hmm. or anything like that. You know, it's just all going directly to the work. Um, but the third thing that I would say, and I think this is the most important, is actually this type of stuff isn't just happening at Thacker Pass. It's happening all over the continent, all over the world. You know, and it's it, it's happening in terms of the projects that are being called, quote unquote, green, whether that's offshore wind projects in Northern California that are being proposed in these really important areas for fish and marine mammals and whales and bird migrations and so on, or whether it's solar sprawl in Southeastern California and around Las Vegas, whether it's massive new transmission lines being built to um, bring energy from solar and wind projects to the big cities whether it's lithium mines in, in places like Thacker Pass or the Salton Sea or down uh, uh, at a, another sacred site called Hockamway in northern Arizona, um, or whether it's you know copper mines like at Oak Flat, whether it's uh, oil pipelines, whether it's logging, the industrial overfishing of our oceans, the vacuuming of our oceans, the destruction of soils, you know, urban sprawl, um, there's unfortunately, there's so much going wrong that you don't have to go far to find something that's, that's worth fighting for. Mm. And, um, 
that's that's the blessing and the curse. That's the reality we live in today. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think that's important because for me, my experience has always been that um, the most important thing about fighting to protect the land is my connection as a human being, as an individual to place. And for whatever reasons, certain specific places I've fallen in love with. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the aesthetic beauty or, um, you know, something like that. But uh, there are certain places that just call call to us and need us. And, you know, it, it's in that sort of intangible, very personal exchange between you and the places that are at risk in your area that uh, you'll probably be called by the land, by the water, by the air, by the non-human life, um, by the stones or whatever it is in a certain place to say, hey, I need you to to fight for me. And, you know, I think our job is basically to to listen to those voices and to to trust them. So often we suppress, you know, those those communications from the non-human world. But, you know, the world is always speaking in all kinds of different ways and, and we have to listen. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Max. Thank you for saying that and reminding us to look around right where we are and find something worth fighting for. And also I will link to all of the ways to connect with your campaign to protect the Acker Pass and to find you and to find bright green lies. And yeah, thank you from my little spot here and the web of life for everything you're doing and yours to stand up for all that is still here. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate, I, I see a little bit of the physical and emotional and intellectual and spiritual work you're doing. And I thank you for that. Is there anything else you want to um, bring listeners' attention to or add before we close? I'm just really grateful that we had this conversation. I really appreciate the energy that you bring. And uh, yeah, I I thank you for the work that you're doing. And if anyone wants to reach out to me, I'm online. I've got a website. Feel free to contact me about anything. And hopefully I will get to meet you in person, Leilani, at some point. And maybe some of the listeners too. Yes, let's make that happen. I'll link to your website as well. And thank you again for the conversation, Max. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening. Come to the show notes at turningseason.com slash episode 29 for links to Max's website, the Protect Thacker Pass website, the book Bright Green Lies, and the other books you heard me and Max mention. I'll be back with a news episode on the new moon. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.